Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial issues and answer your health and wellness-related concerns, ranging from nutrition and exercise to sex and prescription drugs. I'm here with co-host Dr. Shetha Chakraborty, who's a national media risk expert, as seen on CNN, the BBC, Fox News, and more. But don't just think this hour is all science as usual. After four seasons as a regular guest and food scientist on The Dr. Oz Show, Dr. Taylor Wallace, who the Huffington Post calls the nation's premier food and nutrition guru, will help me loosen lips and spill tea with special guests that you won't want to miss. So I'm really excited for today's guest. We have David to my right. David Livingston is the deputy director and lead for climate and advanced energy at the Global Energy Center at the Atlantic Council. Brief description of the Global Energy Center. It promotes energy security by working alongside government, industry, civil society, and public stakeholders to to devise pragmatic solutions to the geopolitical sustainability and economic challenges of the changing global energy landscape. Okay, I think I got it. But to clarify, we have David right here who can give a layman's version of that, perhaps. Yeah, so tell us what the Atlantic Council does. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, both. That sounds a lot more serious than your average day at the Global Energy Center. But uh, yeah, the Atlantic Council is a a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan think tank based uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, we, we work on global affairs. We've got different centers working on East Asia, South Asia, Latin America, you name it. We also have issue centers. So I work in one of those, the Global Energy Center, where we work on a whole variety of different global energy challenges from affordability of energy to energy security to make sure people don't shut off pipelines or uh, uh, you know turn off turn off the electricity uh, running across a grid all of a sudden, um, uh, all the way to the key task I'm working on, which is obviously the challenge of climate change. And, you know, how do we ensure that our energy system is more sustainable, just like you'd make uh, work to make a diet more sustainable, for example. So now you have to tell us, for those of you out there who are like me, who are rednecks from Kentucky, you have to describe what a think tank is, because outside of D.C., I don't think many of us no, or I didn't know what a think tank was. Yeah, this is a great this is a great question, and and don't worry, this is not just in Kentucky. This is literally every conversation I have outside of my colleagues. Is uh, so what the what exactly do you do in a think tank? Um, a think tank is basically a it's a research organization, and instead of researching, let's say how the body works, or uh, or what's you know what's the optimal way to um, to get an airplane from point A to point. B, we just research what's the best way to, you know, deliver sound policy in a certain given area. So um, we're working in the policy space. We're advising governments. We're advising corporations. We're advising NGOs and civil society organizations. And we're trying to be matchmakers as well and bring some of these different partners together to solve some of the big pervasive challenges that can't be solved by just one of those. So you were talking, you know, before the show started about energy policy and that being one of your big platforms. I'm really interested because we haven't talked a lot about energy, very surprisingly on the show, because both of us are super interested. Yeah. Yeah, we talked a lot about climate change, but I actually, you know, if you've been following uh, the Democratic debates, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders was very against nuclear energy. um, And we've heard this over and over again. 
I kind of think from a sustainability standpoint that nuclear energy is where it is, where it's question. at. So like, you know, clear up the air for me. It's a, it's a great question. And it's one of those examples of, uh, of the saliency of, let's say, the risks of an energy resource um, uh, greatly exceeding the actual risks of that energy resource. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is everyone knows the the great nuclear disasters in history right chernobyl. You can, yeah chernobyl <laughs> right netflix has a has a role to play in that um uh and it's a great series but what it does is it's created a um a, you know a phenomena of fear in people's minds where they think it's a highly dangerous energy resource um the, the nuclear industry, the nuclear sector has had a couple of high profile accidents in the past, which are easily avoided, honestly, with the technologies of today. And yet it's generated a ton of low carbon electricity, zero emissions electricity, in fact. So it's not polluting uh, the atmosphere and contributing to climate change whatsoever. And if you take all of the electricity that nuclear generates and you then um, divide it by the number of deaths. So basically, if you look at a ratio of fatalities to amount of energy generated, Nuclear energy is an order of magnitude better than coal, even natural gas, um, uh, and and many other, uh, you know, petroleum, oil, many other energy resources. The problem there is people are dying every day from black lung. People are dying every day from, uh, you know, mercury poisoning. Some of the other side effects of other energy resources like coal that you have to mine in a really dangerous, uh, environmentally detrimental and health detrimental way. With nuclear, it's extremely safe for most of its life and and for the vast, vast majority of nuclear plants that have operated throughout history. We have a couple high-profile accidents, but that causes a little bit of a public misunderstanding in terms right. of the safety of that resource. Right. You know, it, it kind of takes me back because... Um, for those of you who follow the show and know me, I'm from southwestern Kentucky and, you know, really close to a lot of the coal mines in Kentucky. And you can see in the population, you know, the health disparities that are due to working in the coal mine. So, you know, I agree. I think the only thing that is a downfall of nuclear energy is basically Donald Trump has the button right now. So, you know. <laughs> And people, people are concerned and there are concerns, which is why it's not part of all of the Democratic presidential candidates agendas. Right. So where how do you compare their different plans in that sense? We have Booker is a big proponent of having nuclear energy as part of the portfolio, part of the mix. Elizabeth Warren isn't. Sanders isn't. I'm curious kind of what you think about that. Totally. Here's the way I think about it. It's a great question there. I think about it in three different buckets of candidates. So there are candidates. Uh, who are in favor of, uh, let's say, keeping existing nuclear plants running. So let's not shut them down prematurely before their natural economic life. Um, let's shut them, you know, let's shut them down when they're when they're set to close anyway. But keep the current nuclear plants operating. Then you have those that are in favor of not only keeping current nuclear plants operating, but building new nuclear facilities, not imposing them on communities, but wherever it makes economic sense uh, and wherever a community is in favor of it. Um, allowing them to build a, a nuclear power plant. Um, and that could be a traditional large nuclear power plant or some of the new technologies we have today, something that we call small modular reactors or advanced, uh, uh, advanced nuclear designs. These are, imagine, you know, um, nuclear units which are about a quarter or less the, uh, the power capacity of a traditional nuclear plant, have additional positive safety features, have a lower cost, and can be almost manufactured in, in high volumes so that you don't have the same cost overruns you have in traditional nuclear. So that's category two, keep existing nuclear plants running and build new ones as well to help decarbonize our energy sector. Category three says, let's close them. 
let's not not only are we not going to build new plants, but let's shut down prematurely or phase out the existing nuclear plants today. We've seen this take place around the world. Actually, we have some international examples. Germany did this. Um, after the uh, the Fukushima disaster in Japan, Germany made a quite snap decision to close down its nuclear fleet over uh, a period of years to phase it out. And um, despite the fact that Germany has been a real leader on renewable energy and has been deploying a lot of solar power and wind power, it's meant that they haven't reduced carbon emissions by that much at all because they've basically been replacing nuclear plants coming offline, zero emissions power coming offline with new renewables, but it hasn't really helped the climate as much as it could have if Germany had kept some of those plants operating and had just done some safety checks. Well, and, and I know we said, you know, in the beginning of the show that we weren't going to go back to climate change because we've covered that a lot, but the bottom line is it's a big issue and it's a real favorite topic of both Dr. S and mine. All roads um, lead to climate change. Well, right. and you know, the bottom line is there is soon to be 11 billion of us on the planet. And, you know, all of us need to turn the lights on at some point and we're going to need energy and we're really using up all of the fossil fuels, coal, you know, all of the resources we have here on earth. And it's causing, you know, a lot of greenhouse gas, deterioration of our ozone and it's nuclear really just, more. yeah, nuclear just seems to be the answer here. And it, you know, it, there's mix. no, there's no perfect yeah. mix. There's no perfect technology. That's for certain. I'm not advocating nuclear alone here. I think it has a role to play if society accepts it um, in a portfolio of different energy resources. The key thing being that those energy resources are moving towards zero emissions over time. So what I would if I were a philosopher king, what I would like to do is is see, you know, set a target and say, we're going to move to a zero emissions energy system by the year 2050, by the middle of this century or sooner. And what we're going to do is we're not going to pick winners and losers. We're not going to say it has to be this technology because I really like it or it has to be this technology because I saw a documentary about it. You just say, let them all compete against each other on the basis of their, their, you know, their pollution, on, their, on the basis of their emissions. And then you can have, you can do it entirely with solar, wind, and batteries. You can do it entirely with nuclear. Heck, you know, um, if, if, if we don't want to leave behind the coal community, we could do it entirely with coal, provided that that coal is 100% capturing its carbon emissions and sequestering them underground, making sure they don't go up in the atmosphere. Put the challenge not on politicians, I would argue, put the challenge on the industry to go figure out the answer, but just set a simple target. That was so diplomatic. I want David to run for president. Well, and that's what, <laughs> no, well, you don't. No, you don't at all. Excellent. You know, I, I'm I'm a liberal, but I'm also very um, you know, kind of in the middle. I'm more of a moderate sure. uh, liberal, uh, and you know, I really think that's where America's great is with the uh, industry and the innovation that we have. I mean, that's where we've always thrived in the world. I believe. So let's talk a little bit about what happened at the DNC in terms of uh, the candidates talking amongst themselves about their priorities and how little climate change actually came up, much less energy as an issue, as a solution, where the opportunities are, where the challenges are to overcome. That conversation is non-existent from the debates. Yeah. So from the debates, yes. It's, 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 it was surprising to me considering that we had, you know, uh, just a little bit before one of the more recent debates, we had a seven hour forum on climate change right. where they, you know, where they did address the issue um, in depth. So to be fair, they had addressed it quite a bit, um, even though it only got about seven minutes in the last three hour debate, which, which was a little unfortunate. Um, but here's the real missed opportunity. They, 
they didn't talk about it very much at all in this in this past debate in Houston. And that's a real shame because Houston is, you know, quote unquote, the energy capital of the United States at a time when the United States is a net exporter of oil, a net exporter of natural gas. And as of the month of June is now exporting more oil abroad than Saudi Arabia is to the global market. It would have been an opportune time to talk about some of the paradoxes of energy abundance like never before in the United States you know, uh, matched against a growing and perhaps unprecedented recognition of the climate challenge. And I'm not one to call this paradox uh, uh, an intractable one. I actually think that there were enormous opportunities there. Houston might be as much a part of our climate solutions future as San Francisco or L.A., San Diego, Boston. Um, The reason being is that, you know, there are some exciting technologies, carbon capture, for example, right? What if we were able to take a natural gas plant, use our abundant natural gas here in the United States, but capture all the carbon from that plant, use that CO2 that we capture as a process fluid to produce more energy in that plant, and then take that CO2 when we're done with it and put it underground. It sounds like science fiction. There's a real plant in Texas called NetPower that's doing this right now. It's not completely proven and commercial yet, but it's almost, almost there. It's on the precipice. And I think game-changing technologies like this don't just come from the left coast and the right coast of the United States. They also come from places like Houston that are the oil and gas capital. In any case, it was a real lost opportunity to, I think, talk about some of those issues. To showcase the technologies in the pipeline, because especially the Republicans love talking about how science and technology is going to help us geoengineer our way out of this planet warming mess that we're in. So why not showcase some of these and talk about the reality of what's in the pipeline? Yeah, I well, totally agree. Not not to mention the impacts that Houston has felt, right? On the not on the mitigation side, but also on the adaptation, the impact side. No one and no city has had it rougher in you know in recent years than Houston in terms of you know hurricanes, uh, you know uh, billions and billions of dollars of damage. Uh, it, it's a uh, it's on the front lines of climate change, whether it's industry or whether it's their actual infrastructure and their livelihoods. Well, and actually, I I thought as a Democrat that. that that's one of the downfalls of the Green New Deal was that it doesn't really take into account technology and industry innovation, which, again, I'll say, you know, America, that's I, I think that's one of the staple goods of America. It's the one thing we all have in common, right? It's the one thing we can actually all agree on is the ingenuity of the people and the right. education, higher education institutions that we have. And despite that, we're not finding that common ground when we most need it leading up to this next election. So yeah, it's absolutely true. I didn't know that that technology was happening. It's exciting. It's uh, it, it just shows you out there that that are even those of us that focus on this stuff a lot. Um, uh, you know, our, our ability to know about all the different exciting projects, all the different exciting technologies that are taking place is limited. Even those of us that are paid to work on this every day, from you know, from the moment we go to work to the moment we come home. So I think it's just a further argument for believing in the distributed ingenuity of American citizens, of American companies. You know, um, and setting up a framework that's technology neutral in which all technologies can compete to realize the prosperity and the wealth creation that's in that decarbonized future, right? 30, 40, 50 years down the road. You are an economist's dream. (laughs) (laughs) I can hear the libertarians clapping somewhere. (laughs) Jill Stein's out there somewhere. (laughs) I joke, I joke. Um, I want to ask you, since we're talking about new technologies, what is the reality of harnessing volcano energy? And there's a, what's the actual term for it? I 
This is really interesting. Are we talking volcanoes or are we talking kind of geothermal? Sort of the- uh, That's probably the, where the, I was going with the, that, yeah. The, <laughs> the, the heat that's underground in the, you know, in right. the core of the earth. Right. Yeah. Geothermal, this is a really interesting one. I've, I'm glad you brought it up. Geothermal energy is really, you know, it's in some ways as old as some of the oldest energy technologies. It's about, uh, you know, similar to drilling for oil, you poke a, you, you know, you poke a hole in the ground and you basically drill down and you tap into the that extreme heat that's uh, that's deep underground. And you use that extreme heat to create steam, which can then drive a turbine, right, right and generate energy. Um, it's zero emissions because you're not using, you're not burning a fossil fuel or emitting anything, any CO2 into the atmosphere. You're just using heat to generate steam, to heat up water and generate steam. Um, it, we, we've, you know, sort of tapped a lot of the promising geothermal areas of the, around the world, not all of them, but some of the remaining areas that are most prolific are a little bit expensive to tap. So a lot of people have thought, okay, geothermal doesn't have that much of a future beyond the resources that we're already exploiting today. But there's something exciting here. There's something that I'm really excited about, and it has a certain po poetry to it. Some of the same technologies that unlocked the shale revolution, as it's called in the United States, right? Fracking, you know, um, is the is the commonplace term, but more accurately, hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling, which have tapped into all these oil and gas reservoirs that are trapped in this uh, tight rock across the United States that have led to us being an exporter of oil and gas. Some of those same technologies can be applied to geothermal as well. We just haven't done it yet. So there's a whole field, a whole niche called enhanced geothermal that I get really excited about. The US Department of Energy is working on this. Some universities in Utah are working on this. And I hope that if we take the lessons we learn in the oil and gas sector and we apply them to clean energy like geothermal, maybe we can unlock a whole new zero emissions resource right here uh, in the United States. Well, That's so cool. And you know, to your point, um, Shetha, like, you know, I was in Ecuador a few years ago and, you know, I'm all about environmental sustainability. So, you know, while I was there, I just took my ex-boyfriend's ring and threw it in the volcano. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, I'm just trying to be green. <laughs> I would, for a second, I imagined him diving in, but he wasn't there. <laughs> to no, if he was there, I'd thrown him in too. <laughs> <laughs> it's Pompeii all over again, ladies and gentlemen. That uh, would have turned into biofuels, actually. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, okay. I was just in Kazakhstan with the Lena Council. So I'm also affiliated with the Lena Council. And I was sat on an energy panel. And Kazakhstan in Central Asia um, is is oil and gas central. And so I was sitting next to a representative from that industry who, and this whole panel was about clean energy and the future of energy. And it's young students at Nazarbayev University that were in the audience. And rather than, and they came to hear about the future of energy and what it would look like for Kazakhstan. And the representative next to me basically said, was trying to recruit these young people to come into oil and gas. And he was like, if you think that this isn't going to be part of this country's future, you are um, sadly mistaken. And we went back and forth a bit. And I was so impressed with the next generation in that country as well and how much pride they have in that sector to argue back on, I didn't even have to really do much in that sense. They were the ones who were like, no, we want to change the landscape of what energy is going to look like for this country. That to me gave me a lot of um, hope there that some of these sectors that are still really holding on are thinking about um, making way for the next generation of leaders who want to see a more diverse portfolio. Well, but don't we have to like, you know, think more 
into the future because eventually there won't be any more oil. There won't be any more oil. So let's talk about that, David. Like, what is going on with oil and gas? I, it's not renewable. So right, it's a great. So so you know, first of all, to your point, I, I think that you know we used to think there will be no more oil and gas. Now I think that peak oil demand might occur before peak oil supply. To, to paraphrase a, a, a that happened under the Bush administration, right? <laughs> well, to, to paraphrase, there's a great phrase that sums this up. There was a there was a former Saudi oil minister of all people who wisely said, um, "The Stone Age did not end for lack of stone. The oil age will not end for lack of oil. So we're going to we're going to move on to new technologies that don't use oil." Before we use the last drop of oil, the last bit of hydrocarbon that's inside this earth. Right. We'll just melt all the ice caps and then it'll flood all the oil fields. And then- <laughs> well, even the most, you know, even the most ambitious scenarios, if you look at there's a panoply of 20 different scenarios out there. Oil companies put out scenarios, clean he energy wins companies. wins for best word used. Put, put, put out scenarios. <laughs> that was great. Do you remember when I used a word once on air and you were like, I do not know what that word means. I, do not know. You, I used you, it wrong too. I've got too. the Kentucky so grammar. I still clap myself. We're, we're going to fact check panoply after this, after this podcast. <laughs> but there's a, there are a bevy of different scenarios out there put out by different better. organizations, including the International Energy Organization, the International Renewable Energy Organization. Even the most aggressive scenarios in terms of uh, reducing our oil demand by, let's say, using more electric vehicles, using hydrogen vehicles, using more public transit, et cetera, still show more than 50 million barrels of oil being used, well more than 50 million barrels of oil being used in the global economy a few decades out. So oil is going to remain a part of the economy, whether we like it or not. It's here to stay. It's not here to stay at current levels. We're hopefully going to peak demand and, and start using less and less and less. But it's still going to be a fundamental part of the global economy. So what I hope those students did is they said, yes, if I'm going to go work in my, you know, in Kazakhstan's, in my country's oil and gas sector, I want to work on the side of new technologies that'll that'll reduce emissions in that oil. I want to produce green oil, right? I want to make sure that the oil that we produce has the lowest emissions profile possible. And I want us to compete with the rest of the world, including the United States, on the carbon profile of that oil. I don't know if they were doing that, but I but I hope they were. And I think that'll be particularly courageous in a country whose economy, whose gleaming streets and towers and monuments right. were literally built on petro wealth. Right. Do you see that? Do you see the oil industry taking that charge? I, I think it's a really interesting time in history. The, the oil industry is at an inflection point and you don't see a monolithic response. You see various different oil companies doing various different things. Arguably, uh, the European oil majors uh, are further out ahead of the American oil majors. Although I think that's starting to change a little bit as some of the American oil majors are waking up a little bit. What's really interesting as well is they have totally different strategies. Some of them are just saying, "Okay, we're going to produce less and less oil and we're going to produce more natural gas, which is, you know, they say is a bridge fuel. Others are investing in really, you know, uh, uh, next generation technologies like fusion energy um, that we haven't quite made commercial yet. Others are investing in uh, clean energy, which is liquid and similar to oil. 
um, you know, but which has a lower emissions profile, like advanced biofuels or second generation biofuels. Yet others are tr trying to be moved from becoming oil majors into electricity majors. They're basically going all the way around again. They're moving from these, you know, high risk, high return oil drilling industries to just become your average day energy yeah. utility, your electricity <laughs> utility, your Pepco. Um, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch which of these strategies win and which of them doesn't. To me, it's one of the great dramas of the 21st century. Well, you all can go work for the oil industry, but I'll tell you, coming from Kentucky, I'm not going to the coal mine, honey, because I have been to Walmart several times and I have seen the people that work in the coal fields and I like my teeth and my lungs. <laughs> not only that, but you've probably seen some of the damages of, uh, of hilltop removal, right? Where yeah. they're literally blasting the tops off of mountains. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, this is where I would say, you know, the, the environmental damage of coal is not just in terms of its carbon emissions profile. There also is, is rampant kind of, uh, you know, societal uh, and 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 local environmental destruction, which is oftentimes linked to to the coal industry, that we have to address as well. Well, you know, we like to blow things up in Kentucky, so you know, <laughs> it, there was actually when I was home last time, there was this farmer that was um, trying to get the edge up on all the other fishermen. So in Kentucky, when you want a lot of fish, you just throw dynamite into the lake, <laughs> all the fish float to the top, and you collect it and then sell it to Whole Foods, like because it's organic, right? No, producer, no hormones. Our producer is reacting. <laughs> to Taylor right now in that story. <laughs> so, um, okay, a few things I want to make sure we touch upon. This is a great conversation. It's super interesting. And we could talk about, literally talk about it for hours and even segment it down into more, which we'll have you back, David, and we'll definitely get dig a little bit deeper on these particular energy sources. Um, and I think what we just said was a really important point because increasingly a lot of these companies and sectors are finding it difficult to recruit the best and the brightest because of the stereotypes around and how archaic some of the practices are, et cetera. So there needs, that in itself is promoting innovation and hopefully getting companies to take charge, take the lead to say, we want to recruit the best. So we need to really showcase that we are leaders in the future. We are invested in a more diverse energy portfolio and a sustainable planet, right? So, so that's good. Um, so I want to make sure you get to also say whatever else you want to have on the record here for this. But I'd love to talk to you a little bit about national security implications of energy. Let's talk about it. After all, I, I, I may not have said in my introduction about it, the Atlantic Council is not just a policy think tank. It's really a security think tank. Right. Um, our motto is securing the future. But so, nonpartisan. Uh, that's right. So go ahead. <laughs> go right ahead. Yeah. So the reason that a lot of these, uh, we're not willing to give up some of these sources of energy is because we have relied on reliable energy for so long and it's so necessary for our military enterprise. That to risk switching to renewable means there could be vulnerabilities now in our grid. Yeah. That's something we need to overcome. So, so you know, if you if you talk about if you talk about risk, right? If you talk about risky business, um, uh, think about you know the dangers of, of of fossil fuels this way. Actually, in an operational environment for our U.S. military, um, we recently had a summit that we did in Chicago called the Veterans Advanced Energy Summit. One of the more interesting takeaways for me from that summit was someone who was a a, a combatant commander in um, uh, in Afghanistan was describing that the number one 
cause of fatalities in Afghanistan was uh, fatalities, right? exactly, linked to refueling, linked to the fuel supply chain, um, which is, of course, about bringing oil, uh, you know, barrels of oil to remote distant places where it's needed to operate machinery. And, you know, you're moving these convoys of fuel, which are literally just flammable yeah, targets. Yeah, you just fire at them and then boom. Sitting ducks, exactly. Yeah, yeah. talk about, you know, watch, watching yeah. things explode. I mean, it's a, it, you know, so the U.S. military is actually should be the clean energy leader in the world in terms of the ones that have the number one rationale to move away from fossil fuels, to move to things where you can just set up a microgrid in the middle of the desert, right? And, and use the sun, which is beaming down every day to power your operations instead of relying on some elaborate, vulnerable, complicated fuel convoy. Um, in addition to that, though, I, you know, I want to note that, you know, the other thing we're looking at at the Atlantic Council is how this transition to cleaner fuels is also going to change geopolitics, right? Yeah. What is it going to mean for, um, for oil producing states, which have traditionally relied on the largesse provided by petrodollars to kind of sustain their uh, particular, their particular governments or their particular uh, societal systems. So think about countries in the Gulf, think about Russia. We've already seen what's happened in Venezuela when oil production declines, right? Um, uh, you know, and, and similarly, what does uh, the U.S.'s newfound fossil fuel abundance, right? Its exports of oil and natural gas. What does it do to foreign policy? I would argue that you wouldn't see such a the ability to to have such aggressive sanctions on Russia, Iran, and Venezuela, right? simultaneously, three different oil sanctions regimes, which are very aggressive going on simultaneously, if the US were still importing oil like it was in the mid 2000s. Right. This is a phenomena provided by the US's energy abundance. And it's going to be really difficult for us. We're going to have to have tough conversations about how to reconcile the foreign policy flexibility that that energy abundance provides with the need to make sure that we're moving towards a zero carbon economy, not because it's the right thing to do, but because that will ultimately is a security necessity. That's an imperative. I mean, I don't think of this as a nice to have. It's not about environment. It's not about sustainability. It, it, this is about you know saving lives and ensuring that we have a livable planet uh, for ourselves and our partners and allies in you know in twenty. 30, 50, 100 right. years to come. There is a link to climate here, too. Natural events um, <clears throat> reinforce or weather events reinforce uh, the vulnerability here. So if you have if you take out the electric grid from through some sort of natural disaster, then you are more vulnerable to nefarious attacks. So it's it, it, there is that link to the planet also warming. It's it's like um, this vicious feedback that's going on, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this ties back to what we were talking about earlier with you know with Houston and with extreme weather events. Um, we also need to make sure that we harden our energy infrastructure, make our energy infrastructure more resilient. Um, the Atlantic Council also has another center in addition to the Global Energy Center where I work um, called our Resilience Center, which is doing some terrific work at looking at how we make our societies more resilient, um, not only in, uh, um, you know, not only in terms of our energy systems, but also our coastal cities. You know, how do we make sure that Miami doesn't go underwater in the future? Um, but when storms hit, you know, we've seen it in the Northeast and some of the storms that have hit New York and Boston. Um, you know, how do we ensure that our, our interconnected grid of the future with all these different renewable resources on it is also making us more resilient in, uh, to, to the future impacts of climate change as well. It's a great point. I want to make sure that we talk about things that we might have missed in the last few minutes that we have. So I'm thinking, what, what would you like an audience that might be hearing about the issues around energy, its relationship to the planet warming? What is like a takeaway if 
nobody's engaged with this topic, what is the one thing that they should really think about going forward? Absolutely. The number, I mean, the number one thing to understand is that there are all sorts of different priorities that we ask from our energy system. We want it to be reliable. We don't want the lights to go out all of a sudden, right? We don't want it to be maybe uh, zero emissions and cheap, but really unreliable. We also don't want it to be uh, expensive. Uh, we don't want it to be um, polluting. We ask so much of our energy system, and there are so many people who are passionate about certain issues here. But it's going in order to do this well, in order to do this in a way which is durable and which delivers the energy system that we want in the future, we're going to have to work on all dimensions of this security, affordability, reliability, sustainability, all at the same time. That's what we're trying to do here at the Atlantic Council. That's what we're trying to do in our Global Energy Center. And I hope that uh, for anyone who's interested, you'll go to our website, you'll check out AtlanticCouncil.org. You'll uh, find me, you'll reach out to me, send me an email, uh, David Livingston at the Atlantic Council. And we love to you know work with you and talk more with you about all these challenges and opportunities in the future all of that will also be in the show notes so he will be easy to find for sure absolutely well there you go mitch mcconnell the bipartisan answer to all of your questions today That's a wrap for today. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at Dr. Taylor Wallace. That's D-R-T-A-Y-L-O-R-W-A-L-L-A-C-E. And me at Shweta C. That is S-W-E-T-A-C. Thank you for tuning in to Risky Behavior.